On this week's 51%, hear from the first woman expected to serve as Vermont Senate pro tem, and another woman has taken disaster prepping to another level. Some of my family and friends thought, okay, that's cool, but then a lot of people were like, yeah, you're weird, and what are you preparing for? Because a lot of people that I meet, the first thing I'll ask them is, are you preparing? And they'd be like, preparing for what? I'm Allison Dunn, and this is 51%. record number of women will serve in Congress next year, and women are gaining political ground in a number of states, including Vermont. In fact, when the new biennium of the legislature begins on January 6th, the first woman to serve as the Vermont Senate pro tem is expected to be confirmed. During a caucus in November, Democrat Becca Ballant won the nomination, and with Democrats controlling the Senate, her election to the post is secure. Ballant, a Brattleboro resident who is openly gay, is one of a cadre of women assuming top positions in the State House in 2021. She tells 51%'s Pat Bradley why she wants to be pro tem of the Vermont Senate. You know, I fought for social justice and equality my whole life. And I think government is a mechanism that can be used to make the world more just. And to have the ability to work with my chamber in Vermont towards those ends is really, really exciting. And I think it's also a great use of my skills and experience. I come from being a longtime educator, and I have really solid facilitation skills. I know how to ask the right questions and how to strive to hear from all the voices in the room. And as a teacher, approaching as a teacher, I want to help my colleagues grow their innate talents and develop some new ones. So I really see myself as a conduit for others to find their voices uh, in the halls of power. And, you know, it's not lost on me, too, that I'll be the first woman in this role in the history of the state of Vermont. And I think as a woman, as the child of an immigrant, as a member of the LGBTQ community, um, as a person who didn't come from money or political power or have political mentors and connections. I think I am the right leader for this moment because I just represent everyday people in our communities. And I really want our legislature to reflect the needs and interests of our diverse population here in Vermont. With all of that, the focus as the session starts, at least, is going to have to be the pandemic. Absolutely. How are you how are you going to work in the pandemic and still move towards some of these goals and some of these ideals that you just outlined? Yeah, well, I see them very much intertwined. And I will, I will say to you, you're absolutely right. We are going to be, for the foreseeable future, working on pandemic relief uh, 24-7. We are very concerned about what will happen if we don't get any more uh, federal CARES funds, it's going to be very difficult for us to balance the budget and to really give attention and resources to our um, existing programs, let alone any, any new ones. But I don't think that my push for thinking about um, equity and social justice is actually apart from our goals in terms of pandemic relief. And so I'll just give you one snapshot. When you think about 
the massive amount of unemployment that we have related to the pandemic and how since the beginning of the pandemic, we've lost about 22 some odd million jobs nationwide, about 12 million of those jobs have come back in some form, but we're still 10 million jobs behind. Nine million of those 10 million jobs roughly are in the service section. And we know that within the service sector, most of those jobs are held by women and by minorities. So in directing our attention to coronavirus relief in terms of you know, economic relief, there are issues of social justice and equity embedded within both the problems and the, and the solutions. So I actually think that they have to go hand in glove. Becca, how will your perspective as a woman and as somebody who's part of a minority community, basically, mm-hmm. the LGBTQ community, yeah. how do you think that that's going to impact how the issues move in the Senate, at least, um, you know, you can't necessarily control what happens in the House, but at least what's right. going to be happening in the Senate. Right. You know, I went back um, to think about all of the people that have held this job before me in Vermont, and, and a, a mentor and friend of mine suggested that I go back and literally read the names of all the men who have come before me. And it was really fun because they have names like Ebenezer and Orlando and Seneca um, and Ernest. And, you know, they go all the way down to, you know, my name will be there at the bottom. And I said to someone yesterday, I don't necessarily know if I will be um, a better pro tem because I come as, you know, with my experience as a woman, as an LGBTQ Vermonter, as a child of an immigrant. I don't know if I'll be a better leader, but I do know that I will be bringing different perspectives into the chamber, into the conversation. And so our experiences in our state and our nation are shaped in no small part by race and gender and class and political affiliation. And so it's really important that we acknowledge that, that very few things we can point to and say, this is a universal experience that everyone has, right? There was very few of those things. You can say love and grief and emotional responses, but in terms of the experience that you have on the ground, it's shaped by all these other things. And so I want to encourage all of us to not look for easy answers to um, our problems because one, you know, we often hear in government one size doesn't fit all, but, but even two sizes don't fit all, right? So we often talk in Vermont about the two Vermonts, meaning those with means and those without means. And although that's a good starting point for talking about these issues, you really have to dig deeper than that. Because just looking, what I was talking about is who are the people losing jobs right now? It's primarily women. And um, many of those are, are women of color nationally. And so white collar Americans are experiencing this uh, pandemic differently from blue-collar Americans. And within the service sector, when you break it down by gender and by race, there is more um, really important nuance for us to examine. So I'm going to really push my my colleagues and myself not to define things in, in easy terms 
And that's always hard when you're talking to constituents about it, right? Because we are in a soundbite culture. But I'm really going to encourage all of us to understand our communities more completely in a more complex way. And I actually have asked each of my senators to send to me some notes that they have taken, just reflections on what is their district like? What are the things that are most important to those constituents that they represent? Because then we bring those all back together and we tease out the things that are sort of universal experiences across Vermont. We try to address those. But my rural districts within the Senate are going to have a different experience than those who represent, you know, the booming city of Burlington. And and we've got to have room within uh, the caucus, the Democratic caucus, and within the chamber as a whole to talk honestly about what's happening in each of our districts. Becca Ballant, it seems like Vermonters are becoming very diversified. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about how women will dominate the leadership in the state house. It's not just you being the first woman as pro tem in the Senate. We've got Molly Gray becoming a female lieutenant governor. Allison Clarkson is going to be the Senate majority leader. Uh, Cheryl Hooker will be the Senate whip. In the House, it looks like Jill Krowinski will be the next speaker. Over in the House also, Taylor Small is the uh, first transgender representative in the House. Why do you think women have become so strong in Vermont? Is it just that are you talking issues and it doesn't matter, or is there something else going on? Well, it's a couple of things. I want to, um, you had said something that I thought was really interesting. A couple of the headlines in the last couple of weeks have been, you know, women will dominate leadership. And um, although I think that we will be truly more represented in leadership, it's an interesting word dominate because I've never seen a headline in Vermont that says men will dominate leadership. And yet they've done it for, you know, hundreds of years. So it's just an interesting thing for us to wrestle with. What does it mean when, when women finally are having their place in positions of leadership? And so you ask a great question is like, what does it mean? What's going on here? I actually think as we come out of this summer of a national reckoning, finally, about unfinished business, about racial equality, or inequality, rather. And when we see the repudiation at the ballot box of the Trump administration and how so many of those swing state victories um, came down to black women turning out in really large numbers, I feel like there's been this energy that has been bottled up that is now finally unleashed, that people feel like we have to be fully engaged in democracy if we're going to make the changes that we want to see. I see that in my own community. I see that within the legislature, that women and other marginalized groups within Vermont are saying, I have to try to control my own destiny. I can't leave it up to other people to do that. And so although there are going to be more women in leadership in the Senate, we still only make up, I think at this point, less than a third still of the senators in that chamber 
And so we've never sent a woman to Congress. We've only had one female governor in the state of Vermont. And so I think in some ways women feel like we're making up for lost time. For 51%, I'm Pat Bradley. This next story comes to us from Wyoming Public Media's podcast, Human Nature. Host Erin Jones introduces us to a woman who wanted to be prepared, but found herself the odd one out. Sharon Ross spent her 1970s childhood in the country. I grew up in southern Oregon in a little town called Sam's Valley. Sharon's family was the only black family in town. A lot of people there had never experienced, let alone seen, a black person. So I would run into situations where I'd have people literally come touch my skin because, you know, they thought it was going to rub off or something or touch my hair because they have never seen anyone's hair like mine, you know, in an Afro style or whatever. So it, it was different trying to adapt to it, but all in all, it wasn't too bad, you know, could have been worse. My dad taught me how to shoot a gun at age six because of the environment that we were in. You know, being the first black family and having people shouting out the N-word to you, he wanted to make sure, since I was the oldest, that I had the knowledge to be able to protect myself. So he taught me how to use a gun, he taught me how to throw a knife, how to use a knife, how to jab, 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 um, how to shake you. He would say, shake him. <laughs> um, how to fight. I learned how to box through him. So he taught me a lot. Yeah, I didn't like it. Because, you know, sometimes I was a girl. One day I may be a girl and I didn't feel like being a tomboy. You know what I mean? My dad was a Marine. And he was my Superman. Because when I was a kid... When we were moving, I saw him pick up a freezer and put it on one shoulder and walk it to the truck. And I thought that was just like, he's so strong. He's, a, he's, he's Superman to me. So he's always been um, Superman, but he was tough. You know, he would be the person I'd go to when I, I was having problems. And so, you know, and he gave good advice and all that stuff. So just going to him with situations and, and we'd have good conversations, you know, I could open up to him and he didn't judge me like my mom would. Sharon grew up. She left home, left the state, but eventually by her early thirties, she got a job back in Portland. And then Hurricane Katrina happened. Sharon found herself glued to the news about people in New Orleans. When I was watching the newscast on that, I had decided right then and there that I wasn't, I was not going to be that person. And I started prepping then. I remember going, looking through my kitchen for foods like the canned foods the dried spaghettis and noodles and things like that, dried rice, the beans, you know, those kind of things, and realized that I already had a whole bunch of food in my house, survival food. I think I had like a five-gallon bucket of just rice, a five-gallon bucket of just beans, a five-gallon bucket of just noodles, and I was like, holy shit. 
uh, that's okay. And then Doomsday Prepper came out, and I was like, that's what I am. I'm a prepper. Doomsday Preppers, the National Geographic show about the subculture of people getting ready for the end of the world. You know what? It made me feel like, okay, whatever it was that that mission that I was starting on, that I am not the only one thinking this way. And it gave me a little bit of confidence knowing that I'm on the right path in my thinking, even though not everybody thinks the same and they prep for, they prep for different reasons. I knew that what I was prepping for was a legitimate reason. In the beginning, Sharon was worried about a big earthquake, kind of the Pacific Northwest version of Hurricane Katrina. But then as time went by, the earthquake, that's just a small detail of it all. What I should be concerned about is if the grid goes down and I'm living back in the 1900s with no electricity, no phone, no you know heat, to live primitive. And that's where it came into to, for me to start learning survival skills. So learning things that I didn't know how to do, like skinning a turkey, <laughs> going out and hunting more, go scouting, go tracking. So I just started picking up skills like that. In addition to adding to my supplies, like tools, solar lights and things like that, that I know I would need later on down the road. Sharon learned these skills at prepper meetups. They were 30 to 40-ish white men, maybe a couple of white women, and then me. I would always be the only minority in the room. That was weird because people would look at me like, what are you doing here, you know? You know, they, they could be a white supremacist, a Klansman, you, you just don't know. I don't get intimidated easily, so I took a seat and started asking questions and became friends with some people and you figure out who is only talking to you, they're just wanting information. You know, I learned how to dissect people at those meetings. but people could be standoffish. If I sit in an open chair next to somebody, that person would get up and move or act like they have to go to the bathroom or go, go get some water or something and then end up sitting somewhere else. And it did feel uncomfortable sometimes, but I, I forced myself to go to at least three and be present. As she got deeper into her knowledge and passion about prepping, Sharon started losing friends. Some of my family and friends thought, okay, that's cool. But then a lot of people were like, yeah, you're weird. And what are you preparing for? Because a lot of people that I meet, the first thing I'll ask them is, are you preparing? And they'd be like, preparing for what? You know, for a disaster, the earthquake. And they're like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen anytime soon. So, yeah, I was a weirdo. I lost friends over it because some of my friends thought I was just going crazy and they didn't want to deal with me anymore talking about preparing. Even though Sharon was losing friends, she persisted. 
And as she met more people in prepper communities, she discovered Earthships. I ended up finding a post on Facebook and it said, let's go to Towson, Mexico and stay in an Earthship. And I'm like, oh my God, what's an Earthship? And I looked and it's a self-sustainable home that generates its own electricity, collects its own water, and the water is used three times before it leaves your home. And it is also a greenhouse. So you can also grow all your vegetables and your fruits, your fruit trees, whatever it is that you need, you know, right there within the home. And I love that. So I ended up taking three trips and planned two of them from Facebook, just putting an ad out, anyone want to go to New Mexico and stay in the Earth ships. And for three years, we had strangers from around the country, 23 of us, all sharing in four different Earth ships. So we got to experience. We set up tours on different locations, and I love that home. And I had to go and, and see it for myself because I couldn't understand the fact of how can a home not have any utilities? How does it stay warm? And so um, when we were out there one year, it was May, it was still snow on the ground, and, but the sun was out. You know, it was pretty chilly. And we were out doing touring, I guess it was, and we went back into the rental that I rented and it was hot in there. I mean, I literally had to take off the jacket and the sweater and I only had a tank top underneath. So I was walking with, around there with tank top and socks, comfortable. And there's no thermostat. I was sold that day. I knew that's what I wanted to build. So back home in the Pacific Northwest, Sharon bought 100 rural acres and she's slowly been gathering a community to live there. One of my friends is an RN nurse, another one's a builder and a carpenter and an electrician and a mechanic. I have a variety of friends who are all, we're a big old melting pot. So there's gonna be a, a blend of all of us, white, black, Latino, Mexican, Asian. I'm not going on the point on, you know, I want just all black people because, you know, I would be so wrong by saying that because my grandson is half white. What would I look like trying to say, I only want to have a black thing, you know what I mean? And if my grandson or his father ever wanted to come to an event, I'd have to say, you know, oh, sorry, you can't come because you're white. I'm not doing that. I'm just not doing that. But even if no earthquake or war happened, Sharon says current conditions are apocalyptic enough for her. Black people are the prey, it feels like. We've always gone through this battle of trying to come up and we're always being kicked down and not being able to go forward with our own lives without being told what we should and could and cannot do. You know, going through all of this with this police brutality, the police killings, innocent killings, you know, and then coming to the courts and the courts don't even back it up. Courts are like, 
you know, whatever, like Breonna Taylor, you know, how is it that a man, an officer shoots a bullet, they're going to press charges against him because that bullet went into her neighbor's apartment, but then six bullets went into Brianna and not one of those officers are charged. What's wrong with that picture? That's why African-American and people of color are upset because our laws don't even protect us or their laws don't protect us, obviously. And if Sharon's living on 100 remote guarded acres, that kind of thing is a lot less likely to happen to her. It's not a place that you can just go and roam around because you'll be stopped with a firearm. The homes haven't been built yet on Sharon's land. Her goal is to get the first Earthship built by the end of summer 2021 and the rest to follow. With her community working together, her dream is coming to fruition. Sharon's dad has now passed away, but she says he'd be proud. He would be very proud. Matter of fact, he would probably be right by my side. When I started training with my firearm, you know, it would bring back little flashes of memory. I would thank him for that. I mean, I, I, I thank him every single day for the skills that he, he put in me and the will to not give up and always go for what I want and don't take from anybody and just be me. He would probably be, be my videographer, photographer, and then, you know, and being in it, yeah, he would be right here. He would think this would be fun. He really would, he would have a good time. And I would learn so much from him. Yeah. I wish he was here. Our storyteller was Sharon Ross, also known as Ms. Afrovivalist. She teaches people prepping and survivalist skills. Most of her clients are women. This story was produced by Wyoming Public Media's podcast, Human Nature. To hear more episodes, search for Human Nature with just one N. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Tina Rennick for production assistance. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok. Our theme music is Glow in the Dark by Kevin Bartlett. This show is a national production of Northeast Public Radio. If you'd like to hear this show again, sign up for our podcast or visit the 51% archives on our website at wamc.org. This week's show is number 1639.